A good evening to all of my wonderful listeners, and welcome to episode four of the Historian Weekly Podcast, the forum where we come and discuss the history behind current events and look at them through a modern magnifying glass. In this week's episode, as the Champions League final has just passed and the World Cup is right before us, I thought it would be quite poignant to talk about what we call the beautiful game. Where did football begin? How did it become such a big business? And what impact does it have on our society? Let's find out. Oh yeah, ladies and gentlemen, let's make some history. Ah yes, the beautiful game of football. Yes, I said football, not soccer as the Americans love to remind us. It is the beautiful game that brings together people from all races, ethnicities, religions, beliefs, whatever you could possibly imagine and forces them to duke it out to see who has the best team. But how did it begin? How did a sport where all you have to do is kick a ball between two posts into a net become such a favorite among billions? In order to find out, we have to go all the way back to ancient China, during the Han Dynasty, which was between 206 BC to 220 AD, with a game called Kuju, excuse me for my pronunciation, but Kuju, the characters in it, uh, for it, literally translates into kick ball. The rules were actually quite similar, remarkably similar actually, to modern football, although a few bits of modern rugby were thrown in there. What we know of today as football actually began in England in the 19th century, specifically in the playgrounds of the public schools. It was called association football, and the idea behind it was to standardize all of the different rules that were being used in the public schools in England in order to create some kind of consistent sport where all the schools can compete equally. The meetings between all the different representatives of these schools resulted in the Cambridge Rules being written in 1848. Now, not all of the schools agreed to these rules, but they formed the basis of what we now know today as modern football. Of course, being public schools and mainly made of stubborn teenagers, not all of the schools adopted it, but they became more and more popular. All of these meetings resulted in the eventual formation of the FA, or Football Association, which to this day remains England's football governing body. Also, remember that we are talking about the end of the 19th century, the height and peak of the British Empire, and more specifically, the British Navy. So, since football was cheap, the sailors of the British Navy used to play it as their pastime, and once they went round the world, they exported the sport to local populations, in their colonies or wherever they visited. This means that millions of people of all backgrounds came into contact with the sport as the first time, and because it was cheap to play, it quickly spread around the countries that Britain visited. Football became so popular that in 1904, at the turn of the 20th century, the nations of the world that play football came together and created an international body for governing the sport, what we now know today as FIFA. Not the game for PlayStation, guys, don't get too excited. Just the actual governing body, the boring part. As FIFA established itself, by 1930, they held their first international competition, what we know now today as the World Cup, where the first winner ever was Uruguay from South America. Congratulations, Uruguay, you haven't won anything since. Now, let's talk money. Is football really as big of a business as we think it is? Does it really rake in so much money? Well, yes and no. If we look purely at the transfer fees for the players, which are getting ridiculously high, by the way, and the amount of profits that, and revenue that some of the clubs generate, then yes, it's very big business. For example, Manchester United and Barcelona have both passed the half billion 
euro mark in revenue. That's a very, very decent sum. But as business propositions, football clubs are never really stable. They actually don't make that much money from games, and when they do make money, it's not really consistent. Where most football clubs make their money is off of merchandise, especially in Asia and in South America, selling shirts, shoes, giving player tours, autographs, you know all the jazz, we've seen all of it. But mostly, football clubs are used to expand the owner's businesses. For example, Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea, his business went up exponentially after he bought Chelsea. But Chelsea itself kind of remained the same, even though he pumped a lot of money into it. Remember, Roman Abramovich is not really a Chelsea fan, per se. He's mostly using it to expand his own business. It's the same with the Qatari ruling family, who is, uh, seems to be buying every team under the sun. Uh, the Qataris have a lot of money from oil, and they can use this to expand their name into other businesses, especially football. Football clubs also make a lot of their money through sponsorships, like basically what we see on the front of every jersey. For example, Fly Emirates, UNICEF, O2, they all get into these sponsorship deals with football teams in order to gain more exposure, and in turn, the football clubs receive quite a lot of money from it. The final big source of money for football clubs is TV licensing deals. When Sky, Sky Sports in England, began broadcasting the Premier League, they paid a huge sum in order to completely eliminate, or try to eliminate, the BBC and ITV, who were the broadcasters back then. And since then, it has triggered a price war for TV licensing deals, which has gone up exponentially. And this is also a big source of revenue for the football clubs, because a lot of the TV licensing fees to broadcast them goes to them. So the answer is yes and no. Football is big business, but it's still very risky, very unstable, and could turn at any point. The owners always have some kind of backup business to fall back on if their football business fails. You cannot really go into football by itself and expect to become a massive success. Although I still maintain that player transfer fees are just completely extortionate and ridiculous. I am sorry, Gareth Bale, you are not worth 91 million euros. Come on. But money is such a vulgar topic, isn't it? We don't want to concentrate on money. We want to concentrate why the beautiful game is called the beautiful game. How has it impacted so many millions of lives? Personally, I find it incredible that a sport that is literally kicking a ball between two poles into a net has managed to change the lives of tens of millions of people invoke passions that are usually unseen in daily society, even from s countries that we consider to be civilized. It has made peace, and it has started wars. It has brought different backgrounds together. So how and why? Well, unlike most other sports of the time, such as equestrianism, which is riding horses, for those of you who don't know, Football actually began as a grassroots kind of sport. It was never considered, I'll call it, a gentleman's sport. It was played by the poor, not the rich, and therefore it had the potential to reach many, many more people also because of its reputation. It wasn't that kind of stodgy old sport where the person would probably say, Ah, yes, complete, dear. Now it's time to go get a cup of tea. This was more of a sport played in the pouring rain, your face full of mud, yelling at the other team, All right, then, give me your best shot. And that kind of aggressiveness and passion-filled drive resonated with a lot of people. 
Even as football has grown from its humble beginnings into huge 100,000-person stadiums, that kind of aggressive, boyish drive still remains to this day, and that's probably what makes it resonate still with a lot of people today. Also, to add to that, it wasn't really a tough sport to play. It was very easy. The rules are literally kick ball into net and don't kill the other team in your tackles. Obviously, I'm dumbing it down extremely here, but that's the gist of it, isn't it? To put it into perspective how big football actually is, according to FIFA, almost 240 million people play football at the amateur level in over 200 countries. Think about that for a second. A quarter of a billion people have dedicated their lives to this sport. Also, billions of people watch it. Football is actually the highest global television audience of any sport. And the World Cup is the second, not the first, the second most watched sports event in the world. For some extraordinary reason, the Super Bowl is still the first, but I think most people there are for the ads. Correct me if I'm wrong, America. Football, of course, is not just on the court. Off the court, it has gained a cult-like following and the teams have become almost religious symbols in the way that people worship them. Parts of Europe that we previously thought were humble and civilized turned to fits of rage unseen in any other situation in daily life. Fans from England, Germany, Spain, France, Holland, Greece and Italy all of you are guilty of some kind of a hooliganism that we don't expect out of you being the civilized societies that you are. <laughs> I remember when uh, my grandparents went to Paris to visit uh, just for a vacation. It was a World Cup qualifying match. I don't remember which one. Was it for 02 or 06? And there were tons and tons of England fans in every pub. Now, England won that match, and about five completely red-faced, drunken, mad England fans came and just carried my grandmother, picked her up, and carried my grandmother on their backs while chanting England songs in the middle of the street in Paris. Now, of course, this is the nice hooliganism, but there are so many examples of bad hooliganism that I can mention and rivalries that sometimes turn deadly. Arsenal, Tottenham, Liverpool, Everton, Lazio, AS Roma. These violent groups, mostly dubbed as ultras, carry out sometimes deadly attacks. I remember when two Tottenham fans were stabbed in a pub in Rome by ultras from, I think it was Lazio. Yes, it was Lazio. These ultras are everywhere, and they start fights, they stab, and they consider their team as such a holy thing that they're willing to fight and die for the name of their team. Here's another example of crazy ultras, although I don't know if this is completely true or if this is a legend. Please uh, update on my Facebook page to say if this is true or not. But I heard that in the 80s and 90s in the Maracanã Stadium in Brazil, the ultras who were sitting at the top floor used to pee on the away fans on the bottom floor. I've heard this from multiple sources and I find that absolutely insane, but if this is true, please write to me and verify this, because if it is, it would just be absolutely incredible. Crazy ultras. Also, special mention to the ultras from Olympiakos and Panathinaikos in Greece for not only burning your own stadiums, but also burning the shops around it. Well done, guys. Very clever. Sometimes, the following behind football becomes so crazy that it actually started a legitimate war 
Not many people know this. I didn't actually know this until very recently. But a deciding qualifier match for the 1970 World Cup between Honduras and El Salvador in, in Central South America led to rioting and actually started a full-scale war between the two countries. 2,000 people were killed on each side. There was literally no reason to fight this war apart from one flipping football match. Isn't that unbelievable? It just goes to show you the impact the sport can have on people. It can literally drive people to the point of war. But there is another side to this whole war and football story, and it takes us to Africa, and more specifically to the Ivory Coast. The Ivorian national team actually helped secure a truce during their civil war in 2006, where they played a match in the rebel capital of Bouake. It was the first time that the army and the rebel army met together peacefully to watch the match. This truce actually helped them bring about the end to the conflict. So, as the next World Cup approaches, we can see that the power of football over the hearts of the world is colossal. It brings war, and it brings peace. It brings men and women of all faiths, backgrounds, races, and religions together. Players such as Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and more recently Mohamed Salah have the power to influence millions. This is a platform to bring peace. And the main thing to take away from this, it is said, football is always closer to the people than any government can ever hope to be. Well, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Historian Weekly Podcast has come to an end. Thank you so much again from the bottom of my heart for listening and for wanting to make history and improve ourselves as a human species. I am now on Twitter. I have an official Twitter page called uh, The Historian Weekly Podcast or at Historian Weekly. And please continue to follow my Facebook page, which is also Historian, and my website, historian.net. I have also now launched on Android, so you can find me on Pocket Cast and Stitcher, and a Spotify release will be coming soon. Have a good week, everybody.